Vision Access, a magazine by, for, and about people with low vision, Volume 17, Number 1, Spring 2010. Published quarterly for members in these formats, large print, four-track cassette, email, audio CD, or data CD. Copyright 2010 by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International, a not-for-profit organization affiliated with the American Council of the Blind. Recorded by the volunteers of the Northern California Unit of Recording for the Blind and Dyslexic. Council of Citizens with Low Vision International, 2200 Wilson Boulevard, Suite 650, Arlington, Virginia, 22201, 1-800-733-2258, on the web at cclvi.org, and info at cclvi.org. Views expressed in Vision Access are those of the individual contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the editor or of CCLVI. All rights revert to individual contributors upon publication. Vision Access welcomes submissions from people with low vision from professionals such as ophthalmologists, optometrists, low vision specialists, and everyone with something substantive to contribute to the ongoing discussion of low vision and all of its ramifications. Submissions are best made as attachments to email or on a 3.5-inch disk in a format compatible with Microsoft Word. Submissions may also be made in clear TypeScript. Vision Access cannot assume responsibility for lost manuscripts. Deadlines for submissions are March 1, June 1, September 1, and December 1. Submissions may be made to Joyce Kleiber, Editor, 6 Hillside Road, Wayne, Pennsylvania, 19087, or jmkleiber at hotmail.com. Contents From the Editor, page 4. Organization News, President's Message by John Horse, page 5. CCLVI Convention Preview, page 7. Summary of CCLVI Board Meeting, January 22, 2010, page 8. Chapter News, page 10. Join our teleconferences with Dr. Bill, page 12. CCLVI's Facebook page by Lisa Drzewki, page 13. In Memoriam, Patricia Mason Beattie, page 14. Advocacy, Blindness Organizations and Arizona State University Resolve Litigation over Kindle, page 22. Accessible Social Security Notices Available Thanks to Major Court Decision by Stephen Mendelson, page 24. Fans with Visual Impairments Gain Enhanced Access to MLB.com, page 32. Quality of Life, Looks Can Be Deceiving by Ken Stewart, page 36. Recipe, Cherry Almond Granola, submitted by Carla McCollum, page 39. Science and Health, Bioptic Telescopes for People with Low Vision by Dr. Bill Takashita, page 40. Symptoms People with Low Vision Must Be Aware Of by Dr. Bill Takashita, page 48. People, meet Peter Bauer, page 54. Request for Contributions, page 59. Resources, page 60. CCLVI Membership Application and Renewal, page 61. CCLVI Officers and Board Members, page 62.
CCLVI Chapters, page 63. Page 4 from the Editor. Welcome to the Spring 2010 edition of Vision Access. In this issue, we commemorate Patricia Beattie, a leader in CCLVI, who died on February 5, 2010. In Washington, D.C., Pat was an advocate for causes that would make life better for people with low vision. She also encouraged individuals with low vision to advocate for themselves in their everyday lives. Read what people who knew Pat well said about her. The advocacy section of this magazine highlights three victories in which the American Council of the Blind had a role. A part of our membership dues to CCLVI is sent on to ACB, our parent organization. This money supports ACB's efforts, so we all contribute to the good work of ACB. Thank you for being part of all of this. Help us to grow our membership by encouraging others to join CCLVI. Thanks to everyone who contributed articles and ideas to this issue of Vision Access. It will be great to meet you at our convention in Phoenix, Arizona, or to hear from you by phone or email. JMK 318.10 Page 5. Organization News. President's Message by John Horst. Once again, CCLVI is about to complete another year of service. It will soon be July 11, time for another great CCLVI convention, election of officers, and establishing goals for 2010 to 2011. However, for the present year, we want to especially thank those who are continuing their work of CCLVI. The Board of Directors has held three meetings and will meet again on May 28. Page 6. CCLVI's editor Joyce Kleiber has again directed the quarterly publication of Vision Access, CCLVI's award-winning magazine. Bernice Kandarian has faithfully handled membership renewals and our 800 line. Our scholarship committee, under the very capable leadership of Dr. Kathy Whitaker, is again administering CCLVI's scholarship program. Added this year, in honor of CCLVI's founder, Samuel Janeski, will be the provision of magnification equipment, CCTVs, donated by assistive technology companies to four worthy people who have low vision. In February, we lost a strong advocacy leader in low vision and blindness. Patricia Beattie, a former president of CCLVI, is remembered in an article in this edition of Vision Access. I considered it a real privilege to have known and worked with Pat on a number of low vision and blindness issues. Whenever I see detectable warnings along railway platforms and on curb cuts or large print and braille numbers on hotel room doors and elevators, I think of Pat. She, along with others, worked diligently with the Access Board, which is a part of the Americans with Disabilities Act to make these practices standard. In the borough where I reside, the Amtrak station is being rebuilt. Detectable warnings have been installed without anyone having to advocate for them. Coletta Davis, CCLVI board member, and Richard Rueda, CCLVI's vice president, are planning the CCLVI convention program for this year. See the CCLVI convention preview article, which follows. Check your convention program and be sure to attend these functions. Bring your friends and introduce them to CCLVI. Don't miss this challenging opportunity. Page 7, CCLVI Convention Preview. 
We'd enjoy meeting you, our members and friends, at CCLVI's annual convention this summer. Join us from July 9 to 17, 2010, at the downtown Sheraton Hotel in Phoenix, Arizona. Our convention offers all of us a chance to meet people from across the country who have low vision. We can try out the latest in adaptive technology, and we can learn and share ideas at our presentations, mixers, business meetings, and dances. Here are the events we have scheduled. Saturday, July 10, 3 o'clock, CCLVI board meeting open to all. 6 o'clock, nominating committee meeting. Sunday, July 11, 9 a.m., what is good large print. 11 a.m., exhibit hall highlights for people with low vision. 4 p.m., CCLVI's mixer. 10 p.m., welcome to Phoenix dance. Monday, July 12, 1.30 p.m., Dr. Bill Takashita, host of CCLVI's teleconference calls about low vision. 3 o'clock, Project Insight Workshop. 8 o'clock, Game Night. Tuesday, July 13, 1.30, Travel Destinations that Work for People with Low Vision. 2.45, CCLVI's Annual Meeting. 3.45, Post-Convention Board Meeting. Friday, July 16, 10 o'clock, Farewell Dance. Page 8, Summary of CCLVI Board Meeting, January 22, 2010. Catherine Schmidt-Whitaker, Chair of the Scholarship Committee, reported that applications for the Fred Scheigert Scholarship are being received and the committee is working well. The Sam Janensky Video Magnifier Award Subcommittee will advertise this award and begin taking applications. Application deadline is March 15. Two CCTVs will be awarded to students and two to non-students. Another subcommittee is working on the Carl Foley Scholarship for students doing graduate studies in the field of vision rehabilitation. The board voted to award $1,000 to the recipient of this scholarship who will be selected by August 1, 2010. The board also voted that CCLVI will cover administrative costs for the scholarship committee. Kathy Casey, CCLVI Secretary's minutes were approved as corrected. Jim Jirak reported about another option for conference calling. The cost of this option is not practical for CCLVI at this time. Mike Godino's Treasurer's Report was approved. Mike was directed to correct charges for microphones which were not used at last summer's convention. Coletta Davis and Richard Rader reported on this year's convention program. Board members made suggestions. See details in convention preview article in this issue. Bernice Kandarian gave a membership report. Let's talk low vision with Dr. Bill Takashita. is attracting 18 to 20 people per teleconference call. See articles summarizing presentations from these calls in this issue. Page 9. Tom Lelos, chair of the Large Print Committee, gave his report. This committee is researching issues regarding large print and will prepare a white paper describing CCLVI's position on what print characteristics are best for people who have low vision. Donna Pomerantz, chair of the Legislative Committee, reported on bills that need additional sponsors in the House and Senate. She reported that there has been a settlement regarding Amazon's Kindle, Arizona State University, American Council of the Blind, National Federation of the Blind, and the Department of Justice. Read about this settlement in this issue of Vision Access. Ken Stewart introduced the discussion on accessible pedestrian signals 
Further study is required before the board can take a position on this matter. The next deadline for submitting articles for vision access is March 1, 2010. Publication committee plans to meet in March. Richard Rueda will represent CCLVI at ACB's legislative seminar in Washington, D.C. He will be consulted regarding his need for stipend. Pat Beatty, CCLVI's past president, is hospitalized, and her daughter is providing updates to CCLVI. Prayers and emails to Pat through her daughter are requested. Board members not getting email due to spam filter are to contact their provider. Page 10, Chapter News, California Council of Citizens with Low Vision. We are planning our spring convention. We will meet at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Burlingame, California. Our program will feature Larissa Cummings, staff attorney with Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund. She was a member of the legal team in ACB's case against the Social Security Administration regarding the provision of information to recipients in accessible formats. Attorney Cummings will explain this case and answer questions. Kim Charlson, Director, Regional Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, Perkins School for the Blind, Watertown, Mass., will give a presentation on the National Library Services Programs for Seniors and People with Low Vision from a National Perspective. Attorney Laney Feingold will explain structured negotiation in advocating for accessible pedestrian signals in the city of San Francisco. This was a landmark case which provides a national model. She will be joined by a traffic signal engineer from the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency. Page 11. Then Laney Feingold and Margie Donovan will talk about advocating for an accessible world. Delaware Valley Council of Citizens with Low Vision with members in the Philadelphia area, South New Jersey, and Delaware. Our chapter will meet on March 27 for lunch, support, and information sharing. Metropolitan Council of Low Vision Individuals with members in New Jersey, New York, and New England. Looking good, looking close. The New York City Parks Department has been very receptive to input from the chapter recently. The document presented to the CCLVI membership at last summer's convention, Accessibility Standards for Urban Parks and Playgrounds, is being acted upon and some tangible results are already evident. The chapter was consulted about the appearance of speed bumps to be added to a shared lane along the Hudson River Park to slow down bikers out of consideration for the walkers sharing that recreation path and at the time of this submission a meeting is being scheduled to offer consultation on the design of tree pits found on many sidewalks in the city. Page 12. Join our teleconferences with Dr. Bill. On the third Tuesday of every month, we have the privilege of participating in a special experience for anyone who has low vision. Dr. Bill Takashita, Director of Open Optometric Services at the Center for the Partially Sighted in Los Angeles gives a short presentation on a topic concerning low vision. Past topics have included social interaction and low vision, eye symptoms to be aware of if you have low vision, filters, iPhones and cell phones. After Dr. Bill's talk, all who call in can ask questions and or offer comments. Participants receive personal attention for their concerns. What a privilege. Dr. Bill is so very knowledgeable and so very patient and understanding of what it is like to have low vision. 
We suggest topics for future meetings. You can read summaries of Dr. Bill's teleconferences in Vision Access and hear recordings of Dr. Bill's presentations at the website AIRSLA.org using the link to CCLVI. Better still, plan to call on forthcoming conference dates, April 20, May 18, and June 15. The phone number to call is 218-339-2699, ID number 764-516. Page 13, CCLVI's Facebook page by Lisa Drzwuki. I'm happy to announce the birth of CCLVI's Facebook page. If you're a FB member, please join our group, which is listed under Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. And if you're not an FB member, what better reason to sign up now? Please send any news or photos for posting to cclvifb at aol.com. This account is accessible by myself, Richard Rueda, and Joel Isaac. We are the only ones with the ability to post directly to the group. Looking forward to seeing you on Facebook. Page 14, In Memoriam, Patricia Mason Beatty, May 14, 1936 to February 2, 2010. Pat Beatty, President of CCLVI, Treasurer of ACB, an advocate for people who are blind or have low vision, died on February 2, 2010. In the spring 2008 issue of Vision Access, Volume 15, Number 1, We feature an article about Pat's life experiences. In this memorial piece, we feature the thoughts and sentiments expressed in ACB's leadership listserv by many people who knew and worked with Pat. I received this email minutes ago, though I think we all knew this was coming. I'm still numb and expect to be for some time. Pat was my primary and most valued mentor when I first became deeply involved in blindness and disability advocacy issues after my graduation from law school in the early 80s, John McCann. I didn't realize until a couple of years ago about Pat's involvement in teaching people English as a second language. I had some great email exchanges with her when she shared her faith as well. I had known for years about Pat's environmental access work, but was inspired when I learned about her faith when she was having more and more health issues. I shared her written words with my church prayer chain, and they were truly inspired. Sometimes it takes a tough time in someone's life before we talk about personal situations, not just blindness-related issues with our ACB friends. Artis Bazin My heart is so full of sorrow at this time. I truly don't know what to say. I never met a stronger fighter against this terrible cancer. Pat fought till the end and always was ready to take on any issue. Page 15 She was my dear friend and I will miss her always. Nola McKinney My path didn't cross with Pat's until she served as a bridesmaid at my wedding with Lisa, formerly Betcher. During a reception in Lisa's honor, she fell down a short set of stairs and severely sprained her knee. I spent time chatting with Pat as she was convalescing in our guest bedroom, and despite her obvious pain, her warm wit and intelligence shone through. More importantly, I will always appreciate Pat's mentoring of Lisa when she attended ACB conventions as a scholarship winner. 
She helped Lisa adjust to a recent loss of vision and taught her the importance of advocating for her needs. Peter Altschul I am a little more able to write about Pat than I was when I posted to the list previously. Paul's comments below made me think of one of Pat's favorite stories of one set of those innumerable meetings that most of us would have found boring in the extreme. Pat was very concerned about signage to accommodate people who are blind and low vision. We owe Pat for much of the consistency that exists concerning ADA Accessibility Guidelines and American National Standards Institute, ANSI standards, which deal with consistent height and placement of Braille and low vision signs. Page 16. One of the things Pat did was get involved on ANSI scoping panels that were determining the height of things. Once on this panel, she found out that there was a hazing process in that the first assignment that one got was not always a pleasant one and did not necessarily deal with the part of determining heights that the person was most interested in. Her first assignment was to research and write scoping for the height of accessible men's urinals. Now, every time I encounter one of those accessible men's urinals, I think of Pat when I pee. Some people might not think of that as a compliment or as an appropriate portion of a very impressive and honorable legacy, but Pat enjoyed telling this story and appreciated the warm thoughts. We laughed about that numerous times. I was actually working on a song for the Friends in Art showcase about Pat's writing those standards. I'm not sure how soon I will want to return to it and finish it now, so it may not get sung this year, but I had hoped to be able to honor Pat with it this summer. Pat was a friend and a mentor. I learned a lot about lobbying, about government regulation, about humor, and about how to survive life from my many conversations with Pat. Michael Byington, page 17. I didn't know Pat well at all. In fact, I would have had to have her tell me who she was had she talked to me directly. However, I'm more of an observer than people may realize, and Pat is someone I spent time observing. I noticed her style right from the beginning. In recent months, just before her hospitalization, she and I began corresponding about an issue which she brought to my attention because she thought it was important enough for me to understand. From there, we talked of other things, and she was a wealth of information, telling me just how it was from her perspective and knowledge. It is apparent she was a true leader, and as long as we remember them, true leaders lead and live on. Jesse Rail. I was away all Tuesday, so I'm just now able to express my sadness over the loss of one of ACB's true leaders, Patricia Beattie. Pat was one of the first national representatives of ACB I met back in the mid-80s when I was beginning to learn what the organization was about. She served as ACB's treasurer and in numerous appointed positions, including as chair and later co-chair of the Environmental Access Committee. Page 18. In the summer of 2008, when the Department of Justice released its Notice of Proposed Rulemaking for the ADA Accessibility Guidelines, ultimately withdrawn, Pat Beattie was one of the persons I asked to participate in a group which I convened in Washington to develop ACB's response. We will all miss her style, expertise, and leadership throughout the American Council of the Blind. Mitch Pomerantz, President, American Council of the Blind. Pat has been a presence in ACB as long as I have been around. 
Her contributions to our movement were larger than most people know. She and a few others were in the trenches inventing accessibility to physical facilities for people who were blind or low vision. She had the patience and the intestinal fortitude to attend innumerable meetings that most of us would have found boring in the extreme. She came away from these meetings with regulations that reflected a better understanding of the needs of people with visual impairments. The last time Pat and I spent a lot of time together was working on ACB's testimony for the new ADA regulations. She would come directly from cancer treatments to provide her input. Pat made a difference in what we included because of her knowledge of the rules. She was a champion of change, a wonderful friend, and a lady who was wise as well as smart. Pat, I will miss you. Paul Edwards Page 19 Though Pat and I may not have seen each other all that often, I always left our conversations realizing that I had gained new insight. The conversation which I will remember most featured Pat with her CCLVI hat on, challenging Iowa's blind is blind philosophy. Though she is no longer physically with us, her words will always be with me. Mike Hoeing I haven't really seen or spoken to Pat in several years. We just hadn't run into each other at conventions. I remember our days together on the ACB board. While I remember how hard Pat worked, my favorite memories are the fun side of Pat. I remember when she worked on the convention committee and would come into the convention office when I was running it and we'd have long talks about everything. I especially remember the board meeting in Arlington, Virginia, when the Nova chapter hosted a dinner for us in a room on the roof of the building where Pat lived. Somehow she and I stopped in her apartment for something and ended up staying there for several hours, chatting, listening to music, and drinking a six-pack. Page 20, my condolences to Pat's family and her ACB family. We've certainly lost a very hard worker and strong advocate. I suspect she's already found Derwood Grant and some of our other ACB friends and is advocating up there, if any advocating needs to be done up there. Jean Cabvey. Peace be with my very dear friend, Pat Beatty, who lost a long, ugly two-year battle with breast cancer. She attended our wedding here in Columbia, Missouri, as my guest of honor, and happened to have a fall and hurt her knee. The fall sent her to the doctor and caused the cancer to be diagnosed. She was my mentor, my friend, like a mom to me, and a spirited soul that blessed my life with immense wisdom and many great memories. She took me to ski for light my first time in 2005, which happened to be the last time she attended. She helped me cope with the vision loss I experienced. She taught me to be an advocate for myself, not to give up, and to be tough. I will never forget her impact on my life. Page 21. She had an endless zest for life and for bettering the lives of blind people. No one knew more about disability legislation than Pat. I last talked to her on December 19, a week before she went into the hospital for the last time. She was still upbeat and encouraging to me even as she lay in a full body back brace as the cancer was in her spine. May God bless her soul. Rest in peace, Pat. Lisa W. Altschul. I attended Pat Beatty's graveside funeral today in a beautiful family-owned private cemetery at noontime. It was snowing and trees were covered just like a scene from a Christmas card. 
Winter birds were singing in the trees all around us. So was Janice Peterson Kent, who sang, Let There Be Peace on Earth. Pat's two grandchildren and immediate family were there, including her daughter and son-in-law and three of Pat's sisters. The grandchildren have been taught what to do when you meet a blind person. They are 10 and 13 and both helped us to find chairs under the tent next to Pat's casket, and they personally thanked everyone as we left. Thanks for coming. It was a lovely tribute to her. I asked one of Pat's sisters where she lined up in the family, and immediately she said, Did you need to ask? She was number one, and so she is. Bud is buried there also, and someone asked me if Pat and Bud would be lying together. I told him I didn't mind one bit, and it was nice to visit two special people in this beautiful place. Love to you all, Billie Jean Keith. Page 22, Advocacy. Blindness organizations and Arizona State University resolve litigation over Kindle. Phoenix, January 11, 2010. The American Council of the Blind, ACB, the National Federation of the Blind, NFB, and Arizona State University, ASU, today announced a settlement agreement resolving litigation filed by NFB and ACB against the Arizona Board of Regents, ABOR, and ASU. The lawsuit arose from the university's participation in a pilot program using the Kindle DX, a dedicated device for reading electronic books or e-books developed by Amazon.com, Inc. The NFB and ACB allege that the Kindle DX was inaccessible to blind students and thus violated federal law. ABOR and ASU denied and continue to deny any violations of the law. Page 23, the settlement agreement among the parties was reached in light of several factors, including 1. ASU's commitment to providing access to all programs and facilities for students with disabilities, including students who are blind or have low vision. 2. The fact that the pilot program will end in the spring of 2010. 3. Amazon and others are making improvements to and progress in the accessibility of e-book readers. And 4. The university's agreement that should ASU deploy e-book readers in future classes over the next two years, it will strive to use devices that are accessible to the blind. The United States Department of Justice is also a party to the agreement, which does not involve the payment of any damages or attorney's fees or costs. Mark Maurer, president of the National Federation of the Blind, said, The National Federation of the Blind is pleased with this settlement, which we believe will help to ensure that new technologies create new opportunities for blind students rather than new barriers. Mitch Pomerantz, president of the American Council of the Blind, expressed support by commenting, I believe this settlement between Arizona State University and the two major national consumer advocacy organizations of blind and visually impaired persons will encourage the industry to develop fully accessible e-book readers in the near future. Page 24. Accessible Social Security Notices Available Thanks to Major Court Decision by Stephen Mendelson. 
Editor's note. From Google, I learned the following about Stephen Mendelson. Stephen Mendelson is an attorney and advocate with nearly 30 years' experience working for economic opportunity, legal, and social equality for Americans with disabilities. A graduate of Columbia University Law School, he has written, trained, and consulted extensively in a number of areas, including tax law and disability. Following the publication of his 1996 book, Tax Options and Strategies for People with Disabilities, he has offered tax analysis and tax policy advice to a number of organizations and contributed to a number of reports, task forces, and legal reviews. He welcomes the opportunity to share his experience and resources with individual members of the disability community as well. Page 25. In September 2009, the Federal District Court for the Northern District of California decided the class action lawsuit ACB versus ASTRU. The court ruled that the Social Security Administration's SSA provisions for making notices accessible to persons with visual impairments were inadequate. As a result, you will be able to get notices and other important communications from SSA in Braille, on MS Word, CD, and possibly in other alternative formats that meet your needs. Who is covered? The people covered by the decision include all benefits recipients, applicants for benefits, and representative payees who are blind or have visual impairments. They include people receiving or applying for benefits or serving as representative payees under all of the Social Security programs, Old Age and Survivors Insurance, SSDI, and SSI. If you are a person with a visual impairment that interferes with your ability to read standard print notices, you are eligible to receive your notices in alternative formats. Even if SSA records don't currently categorize you as a visually impaired person, anyone applying for benefits under any of the SSA programs in the future who needs an accessible format will also be eligible. Page 26, what are the alternative formats? In the past, SSA has operated the Special Notice Program, SNP, under which people with visual impairments could request their notices either to be sent to them by certified mail or to be read to them aloud in a phone call from SSA. But based on the evidence presented at trial, the court found that these measures were not adequate for providing meaningful and equal access to all people with visual impairments and that they violated Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. To remedy this, the court ordered SSA to make notices available in Braille and on Microsoft Word data CDs, and SSA will continue to use the SNP system as well. But people who want their notices in these new alternative formats will need to file a request. How to request? If you are known to SSA as a person with a visual impairment, you should have received a call informing you of the new options. But that call is only for the purpose of informing you. You do not make your request through the representative who calls you, and you do not need to wait for the call in order to make your request. You make your request for Braille or Microsoft Word data disk either by going on the SSA website at ssa.gov slash notices slash and follow the instructions there or by calling or visiting your local SSA office or you can make the request by calling 877-708-1776 
T-T-Y, or 800-325-0778. Page 27. What about other formats? Many people's needs may remain unmet by Braille, Data Disc, or SNP. They may need audio cassettes, audio CDs, or large print. Although the court has not ordered that any of these formats be made available, a procedure has been established for people to request them, and there is hope that SSA will respond to these needs as well. If you need to request one of these options, you can do it in one of three ways. Again, you can go on the SSA website as noted above and apply there, or you can go through your local SSA office, or you can call SSA but at a different number. To apply by phone for these other formats, including large print, you call SSA at 800-772-1213. Be prepared for the possibility, as some callers have reported, of reaching a representative who is unfamiliar with the program and who may therefore not understand what you are calling about. If that happens, persevere until you are reasonably certain that your request has been noted, and if that means talking to someone else, then ask to do so. In making this call, and in any contacts with SSA about alternative formats, be sure to keep a record of who you talk to, when, and what is said. Page 28. What happens after you make your request? If you request Braille or Data CD, you won't be recontacted about that by SSA, but no later than September 30th, you should start receiving your notices in your format of choice. Between April 15th and September 30th, you may still receive your important notices in standard print, but you will at least receive a cover letter in your format of choice telling you that you have received an important notice. Now, if you have requested another format, such as large print, then the process will be different. SSA will call you back within 30 days to get more information from you about your request. After verifying your name in SSN and make sure it is SSA that is calling before giving out any personal information, they will ask about what format you are requesting and about why the formats they automatically offer won't work for you. For someone who doesn't read Braille or who doesn't have the means for enlarging or listening to the information from a data disk on a computer, the reasons for needing large print or some other type of audio aren't difficult to understand. And you shouldn't ever need to say that you have no one to read it to you because you have a right to privacy that should not be questioned. Page 29. Within 45 days of your receipt of this follow-up call, SSA will contact you with their decision. They are permitted to deny your request for two reasons, because they think another format is effective for you, or because granting your request would impose an undue financial or administrative burden on the agency. DREDF plans to make resources available should you need to appeal a denial of your request. What else can you do in addition to requesting the alternative format you need? You can do it a great deal to make sure this historic decision benefits as many people as possible. The first thing you can do is help to make sure that the availability of these important new resources is made as widely known and as fully understood as possible. Many people who can benefit from alternative formats and who would be entitled to them may not be closely involved in the blindness community and may not hear this decision. Be sure to make it known in all the groups or settings where you are affiliated so that all those who can benefit, particularly older Social Security recipients with limited vision, 
can be made aware of the opportunity. Page 30. The second important thing you can do is help ACB and its legal counsel monitor SSA's implementation. You can do this by contacting the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, DREDF, to give feedback or if you encounter any particular difficulties either by phone at 800-348-4232 or by email at ssaclassaction at dredf.org. Of great benefit in this regard, you can also respond to the questionnaire established by DREDF to monitor recipient experience and agency response under the program. It can be found on the web at surveymonkey.com slash S slash 68JKVW5. You can read the SSA's official notice of the Alternative Formats Project either in PDF at the web DREDF.org slash programs slash notice hyphen of hyphen relief dot PDF or in text format at HTTP colon double slash DREDF dot org slash program slash SSA hyphen notice dot TXT. For those who would like to access the SSA notice by phone, it is available in a recorded format on the 877-708-1776 number. What is next? The federal court has retained jurisdiction over the case. This means that further rulings or orders are possible, depending on what happens. It is hoped, for example, for enough people who need large print ask for it, that SSA will agree to provide it routinely, or the court will be moved to order its inclusion among automatically available formats. Page 31. Continuing monitoring by counsel and supervision by the court also ensures that problems of implementation encountered by recipients will be noted. Your cooperation in keeping counsel informed of your experience, good or bad, will therefore remain vital. Major court decisions represent the end of one process, but as importantly, the beginning of another. Through the hard work of counsel and of the ACB members who came forward, testified, and assisted in the prosecution of the case, a landmark victory has been won, but it remains for all of us to turn that legal victory into meaningful improvement in the quality of life for potentially millions of Americans in the months and years to come. Page 32 Fans with visual impairments gain enhanced access to MLB.com. Editors note Laney Feingold and Linda Dardarian were the lawyers for the blind organizations in Structured Negotiations on the web at lflegal.com slash about slash number sign C-O-U-N-S-E-L. The Disability Law Center in Boston was also involved in this initiative. Rick Morin, member of CCLVI, has been a leading advocate for these changes. New York, February 11, 2010. Baseball fans with visual impairments will benefit from the implementation of functional improvements to MLB.com, the official website of Major League Baseball, and all 30 individual club sites as a result of a joint collaboration between MLB Advanced Media, LP, 
MLBAM, the American Council of the Blind, Bay State Council of the Blind, and California Council of the Blind. All three organizations applaud this fan initiative taken by MLBAM. MLBAM has undertaken groundbreaking work to make its websites accessible and has assumed a strong leadership position among sports, media, and entertainment properties in doing so, said Mitch Pomerantz, president of the American Council of the Blind. We certainly urge similar sites to make this level of commitment in following MLBAM's lead. As part of the initiative, MLB.com launched an accessible media center for its MLB.com Game Day audio subscribers, offering features such as volume control, ability to choose the home or away feed, and access to archived games. Page 33. Additionally, MLB.com has ensured that fans with visual impairments can continue to participate in the annual online voting programs associated with the All-Star Game and will be providing an accessibility page on its site detailing information on accessibility, usability tips, and customer service resources. As it continues to deliver technological innovations for following baseball games, MLB.com will make additional accessibility enhancements available to fans with visual impairments. Brian Charlson, a Boston baseball fan and director of computer training services at the Carroll Center for the Blind in Newton, Massachusetts, described how MLB.com's accessibility efforts have improved his enjoyment of the game. As a member of the blind community, the kind of changes MLB.com is willing to make on its websites keeps me coming back for more. It shows how much can be done when people with disabilities find willing partners. For example, with the changes in game day audio, I find myself enjoying switching back and forth between the home and away broadcasters the same way my sighted friends do. And knowing my votes were counted in this year's All-Star Balloting made listening to the game much more meaningful. I'm excited about what MLB.com has done and about its commitment to further improvements. Page 34. MLB.com utilized guidelines issued by the Web Accessibility Initiative, WAI, of the World Wide Web Consortium, W3C. The Web Content Accessibility Guidelines are a particular benefit to blind baseball fans who use a screen reader through which information on a page is read aloud. These guidelines also help people who use magnification technology on their computers and those who rely on a keyboard instead of a mouse. About MLBAM, established in June 2000 following a unanimous vote by the 30 Major League Baseball Club owners to centralize all of baseball's Internet operations, MLB Advanced Media LP, MLBAM, is the interactive media and Internet company of Major League Baseball. MLBAM manages the official league site, MLB.com, and each of the 30 individual club sites to create the most comprehensive Major League Baseball resource on the Internet. Page 35, MLB.com offers fans the most complete baseball information and interactivity on the web, 
including up-to-date statistics, game previews and summaries, extensive historical information, online ticket sales, baseball merchandise, authenticated memorabilia and collectibles, fantasy games, live full-game video webcasts, and on-demand highlights, live and archived audio broadcasts of every game, game day, pitch-by-pitch application, around-the-clock hosted and specialty video programming, and complete blogging capabilities. MLB.com offers more live events on the Internet than any other website in the world. MLBAM Matthew Gould at M-A-T-T-H-E-W dot G-O-U-L-D at MLB.com. Phone 212-485-8959 or visit MLB.com's accessibility information page on the web at MLB.MLB.com slash MLB slash help slash accessibility dot JSP. Visit MLB.com's accessibility FAQs on the web at MLB.MLB.com slash MLB slash help slash FAQ accessibility dot JSP. Page 36. Quality of life. Looks can be deceiving, by Ken Stewart. Alas, what they say is indeed true. Things do happen in threes. Not long ago, I heard eye contact in a listing of book titles somewhere. The day after I listened to Glenda Such's captivating vision access article on that subject, eye contact like shaking hands, volume 16, number 3. Then the very next day I heard via Newsline a New York Times article by a woman ranting about the disappearance of that hallowed cultural tradition of making eye contact with other people in one's vicinity. Glenda's story reminded me of my own childhood experiences discovering that my eyes were not looking where I always thought they were. I don't recall my age at the time, but I would estimate around 12. I was sitting in my dining room finishing up my lunch when my mother entered the room from the kitchen. Speaking from a far corner of the large room, she said, Look at me, Kenny. I have something important to tell you. I immediately turned my attention from my food to her. But she repeated more emphatically, Look at me. There's something I need to tell you. I replied, Okay, I am. You're not. Please look at me. It's important. I don't recall how many exchanges passed before she finally gave me that important message. And I have absolutely no recollection what my mother wanted to be sure I absorbed, but I do recall how puzzled I was afterward. Page 37. Then, no more than a few months later, I had a second and equally puzzling experience at a neighborhood outdoor swimming pool. Bunny Cody asked me to help her to learn to dive. She positioned herself at the deep end of the pool, ready to dive in with me sitting along the side of the pool. She asked me to watch her technique and then tell her what to do differently. I faced her and encouraged her to dive in. But instead of going off into the water, Bunny asked me to watch me now. I'm going to dive in. Just as with my mother, she insisted I needed to watch her, and I insisted I was indeed watching. She eventually splashed in, and I was once again left dry and puzzled. Somehow, I soon connected the dots and self-diagnosed my eye behavior. 
I well knew my eyes were very poor at doing what eyes are supposed to do. Wearing glasses since the age of three, I had made innumerable visits to an optician for eye exercises, as well as to our family ophthalmologist. But no one ever told me anything about how my eyes looked to others, helped by staring close into the bathroom wall mirror. I concluded that my brain was correcting for a central blind spot by aiming off to the side to see what was straight ahead. Page 38. From there on, I overruled my brain's sensible compensatory adjustment and aimed the blind spot where other people's eyes expected my eyes to aim. No one ever again insisted that I look at them, but for the first time in my life, I occasionally collided with a pedestrian coming toward me on the sidewalk. Several years later, I learned something more about my eyesight, again with no help from the medical professionals. Always loving sports, but limited in my proficiency by my poor eyesight. I played softball, but could hit the ball only when it was still bright white and the background grass was dark and we were playing slow-pitch ball. Then, after bruising my right leg in a sandlot baseball game, I tried batting left-handed for the first time because it was too painful batting right-handed. For the first time in my softball career, I hit the ball like a pull hitter. That is, I swung early enough to hit the ball to right field. I thereby learned that my peripheral vision was better looking to the right than looking to the left. My vision has significantly declined over the decades, but I still utilize my self-acquired knowledge of how to get the most out of its edgy portions. And that ranting woman in the New York Times would be pleased, I think, as I place my blind spot right where she wants it, directly on the face of the person with whom I'm conversing, or on the probably shapely figure of the trainee I'm urging to dive. Page 39. Try this recipe, Sherry Synonym Granola, submitted by Carla McCollum. I adapted this recipe from the Barefoot Contessa Food Network. I like to use this granola as a snack, as a topping on yogurt, ice cream, or fruit compote, or with milk for breakfast. Ingredients, 4 cups oatmeal, 2 cups unsweetened flake coconut, 2 cups sliced almonds, 2 cups dried cherries chopped, 2 tablespoons cinnamon, 1 third cup honey, one half cup vegetable oil. Mix first five dry ingredients. Combine honey and oil and add to dry ingredients, mixing well. Place granola in large baking pan, 13 by 9 by 2, lightly greased. Bake at 350 degrees for 25 to 30 minutes, stirring occasionally. Store in airtight containers. Makes about three quarts. Page 40, Science and Health, Bioptic Telescopes for People with Low Vision, by Dr. Bill Takashita. Bioptic telescopes are useful for people who have low vision. Using a pair of binoculars helps you see more clearly at a distance to watch a football game or see the pretty faces of cheerleaders. Bioptic telescopes are similar to binoculars. First, let's look at how binoculars are made. When Galileo was studying the stars, he created a telescope by putting two lenses together. These two lenses have to be separated by space. What are some of the properties of a telescope? The longer the distance between the two lenses, the greater the magnification. The image seen through a telescope will be brighter if the diameter of the lenses is greater. Larger lenses admit more light into the telescope. 
so that telescopes can be worn comfortably by people with low vision. It is important that we make them light enough. It is also important that they provide enough magnification and that their lenses be large enough to admit enough light so that the person can see quite well. Designs for Vision is a company that first began making bioptic telescopes. Page 41. What kinds of patients can benefit from using a bioptic telescope? People with macular degeneration with blurred sight, people with diabetic retinopathy, people who have glaucoma all could benefit from using bioptic telescopes. A bioptic telescope will make images larger and easier to see. Are there different types of designs of bioptic telescopes? These are called bioptics because there are two optics in it. First is a regular lens of a pair of glasses that you can look through. Second is a telescope that is mounted in a particular location in that first lens. The size of the telescope could be as small as the eraser on a pencil. This size is lightweight, and it's not very obvious to others who look at you. You do not get much magnification, nor as large a field of view. On another type, the telescope is as large as the tip of your thumb. These are most commonly used in bioptic telescopes for driving. They will have three to four times magnification. This telescope is positioned very high in the lens so that when people are driving, they have a very large area of the glasses to look through. People who are driving do not look through the telescope all the time because this would make depth perception impossible. The telescope is used for identifying street signs or some other detail. Page 42. The third type of bioptic telescopes are even more powerful. These can be focused from one distance to another. Students, professors, and lawyers use them to read PowerPoint presentations. They are powerful but do not give a wide field of view. Drivers using these would take too long to locate the sign they're trying to read. How can we customize these bioptic glasses? First, we try to find out what a person who comes to our clinic is trying to see. For example, to help a musician who has macular degeneration read music from his music stand, we position the telescope slightly below the center of the eye. This is because the music stand is about two and a half feet away and slightly below the straight-ahead position. The musician will be able to maintain the proper head posture when looking at the music. Surgeons and dentists use bioptic telescopes with both eyes. The telescopes are placed in the lower part of the carrier lens because surgeons and dentists look downwards to do their work. When both eyes are involved, the person gets very precise, fine, detailed depth perception needed to suture a blood vessel or drill a cavity. Page 43, we do not recommend two telescopes for driving because at greater distances the person using these may have double vision. Many people who are computer instructors have to see the monitor at specific distances looking over the shoulder of students. Bioptic telescopes can be useful in these classrooms. An advantage to customizing bioptic glasses is that we can incorporate the person's prescription in the glasses as well as in the telescope. This gives users the maximum amount of clarity, often not obtainable with ordinary binoculars. The doctor may be able to give you less magnification with a wider field of view. This is one way 
of decreasing the chance of motion sickness when people move their heads or their eyes while looking through a telescope. We can also incorporate a filter or a tint and by so doing increase the contrast. Yellow, amber, or brown lenses can increase the contrast. Also inside the glasses, we can incorporate a polarized lens that can be helpful to some people, for example, for a gentleman who wanted to do fly fishing and see into the water. We fit students who are as young as six years of age so that they learn early to use these devices. Page 44, drivers are most interested in bioptic telescopes. Different types of vision training exercises help people learn how to scan and locate what they are trying to focus on in a millisecond. This will make them much more proficient when they go to the DMV to take their driver's test. Contractors, carpenters, lecturers, students, a wide variety of people can use and benefit from bioptic telescopes. Lastly, some people just want to use them while they are vacationing. For example, a lady from Hawaii developed diabetic retinopathy. She wanted a focusable bioptic telescope so that she could play video poker, which was her passion, and then focus on performers, especially Wayne Newton, on stage in Las Vegas. What are some of the different styles? Most of our patients use the bioptics offered by Designs for Vision. The optics of these glasses are very good, especially for driving. The clarity of the lenses without the telescope helps drivers to have good peripheral vision to see traffic signals. Another popular telescope is called the Ocutec, a cosmetically nicer-looking telescope. This is a pair of glasses which has at the very top of the frame a bar that is a quarter of an inch thick and about four inches long. This bar holds the telescope itself. It does not protrude or extend out from the glasses. The image may be a little bit dimmer than from the classic bioptic glasses, but for people who have trouble with glare, the dimmer image can be helpful. Page 45. An alternate model of the Ocutec has an autofocus camera so that it will focus both far and near. This helps students who have to copy from the board and then look at their paper, at the PowerPoint, and at their computer monitor. The price range for bioptic telescopes is from 900 to $3,000. It takes time to learn to use them. Your brain is not accustomed to seeing things in a very magnified manner. Another way that we can use two lenses is having one be a contact lens and the other be part of a pair of glasses. Younger people with star guards like these glasses and make the effort to adapt to these. They can catch a ball and play basketball with these lenses. One eye will see everything magnified and the other eye will see everything in normal size. Dr. Carl Britton has done studies and found that people can adapt to these within a week. The brain can adapt. Now doctors are implanting telescopes into one eye so that the person will always have telescopic magnified vision in one eye. The other eye would not have that type of magnified view. It's interesting that such a large telescope can be implanted into the eye and that people are actually adapting to it. Page 46. Lastly, there are telescopic glasses you can buy that do not have a prescription in them. One of these is the Eschenbach Max TV glasses. These are available at about 2.2x magnification. These are two sets of glasses separated by 2 to 3 inches. You can adjust the focus for far and near distances. 
People use these to see a distant object, such as a TV screen, more clearly. These glasses do not have the highest level of optics as the designs for Vision or Ocutech, which have much sharper focus. At the Center for the Partially Sighted, where I work, we can incorporate people's prescription lenses inside the telescope of the session box system and by doing so save our patients a lot of money. This would cost 200 to $400 as compared to thousands of dollars. The max detail glasses will focus close. This would be good for a pianist, a person who works on a computer, one who does a lot of watch repair work, or a jeweler. The clarity or optics and the level of magnification and contrast are less than that of design supervision or Acutech. Contact your low vision optometrist to have an evaluation to see if bioptic telescopes will help you to accomplish the task that you wish to do. Page 47. Could these be used for doing sewing or handwork? Yes, it would make, it would be hands-free. Make certain that you have adequate lighting. Consider using Eschenbach Max Detail 2.5 magnification with good illumination. If you need more power, get one that is more customized. It can help you with cooking, identifying medications, help you with paying bills, and with identifying street signs and traffic signals when you're crossing streets. Ask your ophthalmologist to write a consultation referral letter for you to be seen by the low vision optometrist for an evaluation. If these bioptic devices are found to be helpful to you, then your low vision optometrist can refer you to your State Department of Vocational Rehabilitation. Forty-two states permit the use of bioptic telescopes for driving, but there are specific requirements that differ from state to state. Core vision, peripheral vision, and contrast vision will all be tested, as well as how well you respond to a pair of telescopic glasses. Sometimes driving with bioptic telescopes is restricted to daytime. Some people appeal to get unrestricted licenses. There are specialized driving training schools for people who have low vision and are thinking of driving. People who lose vision later in life may have poorer depth perception than people who have had low vision all their life. For more information about driving with bioptic telescopes, go to the web at BIPTICdriving.org. How can you find a good doctor to do an evaluation for bioptics? Look for an optometrist and ask him or her how many bioptic telescopes they have fit during the year. Contact the American Optometric Association or the American Academy of Optometry or the American Academy of Ophthalmology for referrals. Call Designs for Vision or Acutech and ask them to recommend a doctor in a particular state who does a lot of work for them. Page 48. Symptoms People with Low Vision Must Be Aware Of by Dr. Bill Takashita. Editor's Note. This article is based on Dr. Bill's teleconference sponsored by CCLVI on February 16, 2010. Here are some reasons why people with low vision and people over 40 should have their vision checked annually. First, people who have eye conditions are at greater risk of developing other types of eye conditions as well. For example, a person who has macular degeneration has a greater chance of developing wet macular degeneration. Early diagnosis of this condition means that better treatment outcomes and even reversal can occur. A person with glaucoma faces the possibility that the glaucoma may worsen. Now there are new technologies that help doctors know whether to change medications for glaucoma. 
People with diabetic retinopathy can develop cataracts, glaucoma, retinal detachment, and strokes. Page 49. A person with poor central vision might not realize how important it is to have their side vision checked. People with macular degeneration could develop glaucoma and not know this. This could lead to blindness. Annual vision exams can prevent these serious conditions. Here are some symptoms to look for. If you notice any of these symptoms, you should be seen by your eye doctor immediately or go to an emergency room. First, pain. There are different types of pain that can occur in the eye. If you have a severe throbbing headache and nausea and see halos around streetlights or headlight, this may be a sign that pressure within your eyes is increasing. You may be developing angle closure glaucoma. This means that too much aqueous fluid is being formed in the eye and it is not being drained away. This can damage the optic nerve and lead to blindness. This increased pressure can be due to eye drops used to moisten the eye and take the red out. It can result from drops that cause pupils to dilate. Another cause may be allergy medications that cause the drainage system in the eye to become blocked. If you have been hit in the eye, you may also develop a blockage of the drainage system. Page 50. If your ophthalmologist cannot see you immediately, go to the emergency room. Tell the doctor, I have glaucoma and I can't see. Describe the pain so the doctors know this is not something that can wait for hours to be treated. Prompt attention can prevent blindness. Another type of pain is pain to your eyes when you move your eyes. This could be an indication of optic neuritis and inflammation of the optic nerve, which is in the back of your eye. Call your doctor immediately or go to the emergency room. Describe the pain and doctors are likely to see you more quickly. Another set of symptoms are called flashes, floaters, and curtain. With flashes, you may suddenly see a lightning bolt or streak of light anywhere within your vision any time you move your eye. This may indicate that your retina is being pulled on. Sometimes your retina is torn, is detaching, or it may have a slight hole. Page 51, floaters look like hundreds of black speckles, like black pepper in your eye. This may be a sign that your retina has torn and pigment from the back of your eye is now floating inside your eye. Another symptom is the curtain. This looks like the curtain at a movie theater that moves up and down. The curtain may be scalloped. The symptom may indicate that your retina has torn or detached. The retina is a tissue in the back of the eye that converts light into electrical signals. If the retina detaches, you could become totally blind instantly. If you see flashes, floaters, or a curtain, see a retinal specialist immediately. Your ophthalmologist will refer you to a retinal specialist anyway, so go to the specialist first. If you notice any of these symptoms, tilt your head backwards and look up to the ceiling of the sky. This will cause the fluid in your eye to press the retina back down onto the back of the eyeball. If you tilt your head forward, gravity is going to pull the retina down. Sometimes people may see floaters that look like spider webs or flies. If this occurs, see your retinal specialist. Be aware of how things look to you with your eyes. Check each eye individually one at a time. We walk around with both eyes open, but if something changes in one eye, our brain relies on the better eye. People may not be aware of such changes until their vision is almost gone in one eye. Page 52. 
Here are some ways to check the vision in each of your eyes individually. Ask your eye doctor for a reading chart. Hold the chart at reading distance. Close one eye and see which is the smallest print you can read comfortably. Label this line with an L for left eye or R for right eye, depending on which eye you're using. Then do the same with the other eye closed, marking the chart. This establishes a baseline. Do this test every day. If your sight is blurry, see your eye doctor. Check your central vision using an Amsler grid or a piece of graph paper. Draw a one-quarter inch dot in the center of the graph paper. Hold this paper at 16 inches reading distance. Close one eye at a time and look at the dot in the center. Check to see if any of the lines on the graph paper appear to be wavy or wavier than usual. Waviness may indicate that fluid is leaking under the retina. There are medications and that can correct the swelling and leakage. Tape the reading chart and graph paper to your refrigerator so that you will remember to check your eyes every day. This way you will catch any changes early. Page 53, here's a simple way to check your peripheral vision. When you wake up in the morning, close one eye and look at the light fixture in the middle of the ceiling of your bedroom. While looking at the light fixture, see if you can see all four corners of your room. Repeat this exercise with your other eye. If you cannot see some of these corners, this may be a sign that the blood supply is reduced. See your eye doctor. It may also mean that a stroke has occurred. Other signs of stroke are problems with speech, being unable to blink, open or close one eye as well as the other, experiencing numbness or weakness on one side of your body, or drooling from one corner of your mouth. In this case, call 911. The specialists who respond will be able to begin treatment en route to the emergency room. They will not be delayed by traffic or experience the stress that a family member or friend may feel while driving you to the emergency room. Notice if you have double vision, this is a sign that something may be wrong with your eye or that you're having a stroke. Check this when you are watching TV. Look at the channel indicator for single-digit channels. If the channel 5 looks like channel 55 or if one 5 appears above the other 5, you may be having problems with circulation and need a referral to a neuro-ophthalmologist or emergency room right away. Symptoms of being very hungry, thirsty, or urinating frequently during the night may indicate elevated blood sugar and diabetes, coma, or stroke. One's breath will smell fruity. These signal a severe emergency and need for prompt medical attention. Page 54, People. Meet Peter Bauer. I have low vision due to congenital albinism. I also have nystagmus, involuntary motion of the eyes, and acute astigmatism. I am the third youngest of 11 siblings. Two of my brothers also have albinism. Reading causes me to experience eye fatigue, nausea, headaches, and a short fuse if I read too long. In elementary school, I was in a sight-saving class. I used large print books, and our teachers read to us when they had time. I liked studying Spanish and Latin in high school. My State Bureau of Vocational Rehabilitation counselor recommended that I become a teacher. In college, I majored in education in Spanish, and I minored in French and English. Much later, in order to maintain my teaching certification, I studied German and Italian. Using readers to complete my coursework, I earned a Bachelor of Science in Education degree from Ohio University.
page 55. But I soon discovered that teaching was not for me. During the Korean War, I worked as an expediter. While attending a blind bowlers event, a friend told me that the public library in our area needed a custodian. I applied for this job and worked for the library for nine years. Because I wanted to use my education, I tutored high school students in their language courses. I also went to the Volunteer Action Center and learned about an opportunity to volunteer as a teacher of English as a second language, ESL, for Travelers Aid International. After teaching for one year, this agency offered me a job as supervisor of the ESL program. I worked there for 27 years. This agency was funded by the United Way and offered services to refugees, immigrants, doctors' wives, and anyone who needed help learning English. Page 56. In this job, I supervised 55 to 60 volunteers who taught 35 courses. Students attended classes two or three or sometimes five days a week full-time. I did an intake assessment for each student as well as for the volunteers. I also trained volunteers to teach ESL. I developed a language bank where private citizens and businesses could access interpreters and translators, intake, book purchasing, setting fees, conducting workshops for teachers, interviewing volunteers, and assigning teachers were tasks that filled my workday. I also did the publicity for an annual international folk festival at the Cincinnati Convention Center. Between 1967 and 1995, the years that I worked at Traveler's Aid International, about 12,000 people attended classes here. I worked with people from Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Greece, Vietnam, Cambodia, Nepal, Latin America, and many other places. Many of these adults needed to find work as quickly as possible. They left our program to go to work, so there was a big turnover of students. How did I do this job with my low vision and difficulty reading? My optometrist prescribed glasses that helped me to read. When I taught classes, I prepared well for other tasks. I would read for about 10 to 15 minutes and then do parts of my job that did not require reading, making phone calls to order books, interviewing volunteers and incoming students, conducting workshops for teachers, and so forth. After retiring from my job as supervisor, I teach one ESL class one night a week. Page 57. My wife, Mary, and I are delighted to have 11 foster grandchildren. This happened because of my job at Traveler's Aid International. One day in 1981, a former student from Vietnam came to our agency and asked that someone offer homes to five young cousins from Vietnam. Mary and I don't have children of our own. We agreed that this was something we could do. We invited the two younger boys who were brothers, then ages 13 and 6, to come and live with us. These boys had other siblings who were still living in Vietnam with their parents. In 1991, we were able to bring their parents and four of their siblings to Cincinnati. These boys and their family have remained part of our lives. They now have children of their own, and we count their children and the children of their siblings as our own. They have enriched our lives. After my wife had cataract surgery and could not drive, one of our boys drove and went with us to the concert on the green. Last year, we traveled to a suburb of Philadelphia to attend the wedding of the brother of one of our boys. Page 58. 
We liked a public television program, This Old House. This organization chose one city in every state and one neighborhood in that city as the best example of old, well-constructed, beautiful homes. We live in the College Hill neighborhood of Cincinnati, which was chosen as the best example of such housing in our city. I am active on both the Urban Redevelopment Council and the Community Council of this historic area. I am a member of the Peace and Justice Commission at our church. An adjunct to this commission is the Diversity Committee. I am active on this committee as well. We arrange for members of our church to visit other churches in Cincinnati, for example, a church with predominantly Vietnamese members and a church in a community of people who are African American. In my free time, I am a handyman and gardener at our home. I enjoy attending fundraising parties for organizations of which I am a member. Of course, attending meeting of these organizations fills much of my time. I use audiobooks and prefer mysteries in which character development is featured. Tandem biking is something I hope to try. I have low vision, and I've been blessed with a good life. Opportunities came as a result of my going out and meeting people. I meet people and opportunities at the Blind Bowlers event at the Volunteer Action Center, Travelers Aid International, the Literacy Council of Greater Cincinnati, the College Hill Community Council, the College Hill Urban Redevelopment Council, the Peace and Justice Council, and the Diversity Committee at my church, and the Greater Cincinnati Chapter of ACB. At the ACB convention in Orlando, my wife and I attended the CCLVI Mixer. There, we met the editor of Vision Access, who invited me to share my story in these pages. Page 59, Request for Contributions. CCLVI gratefully accepts contributions from readers and members to help pay for the costs of publishing Vision Access, the costs related to our 800 line and Project Insight, and for funding the Carly Foley and Fred Scheigert Scholarships, Please send contributions to CCLVI Treasurer Mike Godino, 104 Tilrose Avenue, Malvern, New York, 11565-2040. Our tax ID number is 1317540. Page 60, Resources, Advocacy Attorneys, Laney Feingold, 510-548-5062. On the web at lflegal.com slash about slash number sign c-o-u-n-s-e-l and caps l-f at caps l-f-l-e-g-a-l dot com. Linda Dardarian 510-763-9800 at l-d-a-r-d-a-r-i-a-n at g-d-b-l-e-g-a-l dot com. Bioptic Glasses, Designs for Vision, on the web at designsforvision.com, Acutech, 800-326-6460, at ocutech.com, and bipticdriving.org. Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, DREDF, 800-348-4232, and SSA class action at DREDF.org on the web surveymonkey.com slash S slash six eight JKVW the number five 
Also, webdredf.org slash programs slash notice hyphen of hyphen relief dot pdf or at the webdredf.org slash program slash ssa hyphen n-o-t-i-c-e dot txt. Recorded format 877-708-1776. Major League Baseball Advanced Media M-A-T-T-H-E-W dot G-O-U-L-D at M-L-B dot com. Phone 212-485-8959. On the web, M-L-B dot M-L-B dot com slash M-L-B slash help slash accessibility dot J-S-P. M-L-B dot C-O-M apostrophe S at mlb.mlb.com slash mlb slash help slash faq underscore accessibility dot jsp social security administration on the web ssa.gov slash notices phone 877-708-1776 tdy 800-325-0778 teleconference with dr bill takashita 218-339-2699, ID number 764-516. Page 61. Council of Citizens with Low Vision International, an affiliate of the American Council of the Blind, 2010 membership application, a fill-in form, space for name, address, city, state, zip code, country, phone, email. Membership status, choose, I am new member, renewing my membership, life member of CCLVI, life member of ACB. Visual status, I am a, choose, person with low or no vision, fully sighted person. I wish to receive the CCLVI publication, vision access in, choose, large print, cassette, email, audio CD, data CD, do not send. Please send the American Council of the Blind Braille Forum in Choose Large Print, Email, Cassette, Braille, Computer Disk, Do Not Send. Dues Structure, Payment Due. Select Individual $15 Annual Dues. Organization or Agency $25 Annual Dues. Life Member $150 Payable in up to three annual installments. Additional Donations and space for amount total enclosed. Make check or money order payable to CCLVI and send to CCLVI Treasurer Mike Godino, 104 Tilrose Avenue, Malvern, New York, 11565-2024. Page 62, Council of Citizens with Low Vision International, 2200 Wilson Boulevard, Suite 650, Arlington, Virginia, 22201. Phone 800-733-2258 on the web at cclvi.org. Officers and Directors, 2009-2010. President John Horst, Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. Home phone 717-367-6328. Work 877-617-7407. And on the web, pcb1 at paonline.com. 
First Vice President Richard Rueda, Union City, California. Second Vice President Barbara Milleville, Vienna, Virginia. Secretary Kathy Casey, Albany, New York. Treasurer Mike Godino, Malvern, New York. Past President Bernice Kandarian, Mountain View, California. Directors Coletta Davis, Anaheim, California. Lisa Drizwuki, Freeport, New York. Lindsay Hastings, San Diego, California. Jim Jirak, Omaha, Nebraska. Tom Lelos, Powell, Wyoming. John McMahon, Redfield, Maine. Brian Petrates, Indianapolis, Indiana. Donna Pomerantz, Pasadena, California. Fred Scheigert, Alexandria, Virginia. Editor Joyce Kleiber, Wayne, Pennsylvania. Webmaster Joel Isaac, Rancho Palos Verdes, California. Page 63, CCLVI, Chapter Contacts. California Council of Citizens with Low Vision, CCCLV, Bernice Kandarian, President, 650-969-3155, or B-E-R-N-I-C-E at T-S-O-F-T dot net. Delaware Valley Council of Citizens with Low Vision, DVCCLV, Joyce Kleiber, 610-688-8398, J-M-K-L-E-I-B-E-R at hotmail.com Florida Council of Citizens with Low Vision FCCLV Barbara Grill 941-966-7056 G-R-I-L-L-B-H at comcast.net Metropolitan Council of Low Vision Individuals MCLVI Ken Stewart President 845-986-2955 or cclvi at yahoo.com. National Capital Citizens with Low Vision, NCCLV, Barbara Milleville, President, 703-645-8716, or nccLV at yahoo.com. New York State Council of Citizens with Low Vision, NYSCCLV, Kathy Casey, President, 518-462-9487, and K-C-A-S-E-Y-0-3 at nycap.rr.com.